0: There's a dynamic. There's a power dynamic that you have to recognize. And because of that, you value friendships with people who can be really honest with you, right? And and say to you, that's a stupid idea. Building those honest human relationships that kind of went beyond the bounds of the donor-grantee relationship was quite important because I wanted people to be honest and authentic with me and not treat me or my ideas differently because I was a donor, because I I know that's always a risk, right? And you always have to be aware of it. And it can go to your head, right? It's like, oh, you know, you're the smartest person in the world and you have the best ideas. It's like, no, it's just probably because you're a donor. (laughs) right?
1: Hi, everyone. This is Rowena, and you're listening to Aid Evolved, a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. Now, in our past few episodes, we've talked a bit about donors, the things that we wish they would do differently or things that they could do better. In this episode, we're gonna turn the tables a little bit and hear directly from the donor perspective. We'll be talking to Carl Brown, who spent eight years as an associate director of applied technology at the Rockefeller Foundation. He shares his firsthand account of what it was like to find his way into the space and to figure out the nuts and bolts of grant making Chatting with Carl gave me a lot more empathy of what it's like to be a donor. For example, I had no idea that they were personally, financially liable for certain aspects of the grants that they give out. He shares how hard it is to make the right decision and to find truth when you're surrounded by people who are only gonna tell you what they think you want to hear. It was definitely an educational conversation for me and I hope you like it too. Here's Carl. Talking about how he got into the Rockefeller Foundation.
0: To be honest, Rockefeller was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> I had how funny. Yeah, I I'd, I'd never thought of uh, applying for or working for a foundation. I huh. I knew what they were, uh, but when I was envisioning going into development, I was going to be working at an NGO or I was going to be working with the United Nations or with some other intergovernmental organization yeah
1: I think that's like a the default path that a lot of people in this space fall into
0: exactly and that's that's what I thought right and those are the jobs that I was applying for hmm. and luckily or not I didn't get any of those jobs but uh, <laughs> but then this it sounds like it worked out yeah this this Rockefeller opportunity came up and I really enjoyed the interview process The the people I spoke to were, really intelligent and creative and big thinkers and i i ended up just deciding yeah let's let's give this a try let's uh let's go for it and rockefeller actually and i I learned a lot more about this when i was there but they have a, a very long history of work that is undergirded by science and technology Hmm. You know, Rockefeller was one of the groups behind the creation of public health as a field.
1: Really? I did not know that. The
0: idea of public health came from campaigns uh, that the Rockefeller Foundation and the Rockefeller money had been funded. Fascinating. It's like Rockefeller founded the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Huh. And probably 50 other schools of public health all around the world. Wow. Including most of the major ones that you're familiar with.
1: Fascinating. And I know, even I think your work involved uh, setting up academic and learning institutions in in various different parts of the world as well. So it sounds like that that stream of work continues on within the foundation. Was that your expectation when you you know when you said yes when they offered you the job you said yes I'm going to take this job? Did you know what you
0: were getting yourself into? I did not know, and and even though I was I was joining Rockefeller, I didn't know I was going to be working on health. Um, that. Huh. I, I knew that that was one of the things they did, but I didn't think it was necessarily what I was going to be working on.
1: Oh, that's funny. Could you talk a little bit about your, uh, the kind of work that you did? You know, What was your portfolio like? Was there, was there one project that you were, you were particularly close to that you want to tell us about?
0: Right off the bat, when I started, I was roped into this um, coalition of uh, six different foundations Which we're working on uh, helping African universities.
1: It sounds like a handful. You know, they talk about how donor alignment is is tricky. And I I have to imagine working with six different donor organizations as your first project in the donor space. It just, it it sounds like a handful.
0: I don't know if it was. For me, it was was a great learning experience because I got to be around all of these other much more experienced program officers um, Mm. and kind of watch them how they did their work, right? So right. I formed friendships with these people and I was the rookie, right? They'd all been doing this. <laughs> I was the new kid on the block uh, yeah. and I was learning how to be a program officer. And it, it was it was bizarre because when I when I first joined the foundation, I was an associate director. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that's what I was, but then people started calling me an officer and I was like, wait, what? why are you calling me an <laughs> officer? And it's it's because... That is sort of, let's say, the more traditional title for my job. And what officer means in a foundation is that you can recommend a grant. Other people who are mm-hmm. not officers cannot recommend a grant. And hmm. if you recommend a grant, you have to sign it. And you are personally liable for that grant. That, oh, yeah. And what, what I mean is that if you make a grant to an organization that definitely shouldn't get it, there's a penalty that's can be quite huge, a financial penalty. Really? And you have so, to pay I, it. <laughs> like out of your own pocket, your own salary? How, out what? of your own pocket. The foundation can't what? pay it for you. You have to pay it out of your own pocket. So that's why. But it's your every, own
1: like portfolio. Like the foundation has a, has a budget that you
0: manage. and then it No, no, no. Out of my budget. own bank account.
1: What? Sorry, I just, I, I'm not, I feel like I'm not quite understanding. Like you, you have, your salary was contingent on the success of your investment portfolio.
0: No, no, no. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Let's, let's, let's re-explain that. So (laughs) what I'm saying is as an officer, when you sign a a grant, Mm -hmm. you're putting your own name online in a, in a legal perspective Mm. uh, to say that this grant is appropriate per the terms of the IRS. And so, if you make a grant to an organization which is not allowed to receive that money for whatever reason, right.
1: like, your, like your let's brother. say it's some
0: sort of <laughs> scam or some sort of fraud or yeah, some sort of you know malfeasance, then the IRS can come after you and um, basically huh. make you pay a huge fee. And you have you to. You as it an out individual, the
1: not the Rockefeller Foundation.
0: Yeah, the Rockefeller Foundation has to pay the fee too, but you also have to pay the fee.
1: That's fascinating. I didn't. I didn't know that. Uh, and I, and I think that's one of those things. Probably one of those insights that you have that a lot of us working in aid don't have. You know, it makes you makes you realize maybe why some of these donors are are so rigorous. <laughs> um, you know, maybe the word bureaucratic, asinine. I don't know about, about like some of the the things they hold organizations accountable, like you being legally personally on the line. Uh, As I, I had no idea that you were accountable for that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and it, it doesn't mean I'm accountable if the you know if the grantee just doesn't do a great job. It's it's more like if the grant is totally inappropriate. But luckily, right. we have a we have a whole office of people um, that and their their whole job is to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I I don't think mm-hmm. I don't know of any cases where it ever happened at Rockefeller, but um, it is. Yeah. But- yeah. It is just sort of part of the thing that when you're signing on the line, you're, you're kind of, you're not indemnified by the foundation. It's um,
1: yeah. yeah. And, and, and I can imagine, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on these days in particular with the, the path to self-reliance uh, on investing in, in local organizations, um, which on the on the one hand, I'm a huge fan of on the other. I, I can also imagine if there's 20 people popping up in Togo saying they want money to do good, how you know what are the steps that are required to to make sure that this is actually a legitimate organization and not someone just looking to get funds and disappear? Like I, I think that's a, a burden that rests squarely on the shoulders of of donors. Um, you know, either either someone like you or the office that you described that needs to make sure that that this is a a real cause worth investing in.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So basically, that if you think about the way a foundation works, right, they they have this endowment in the case of the Rockefeller Foundation. I think the endowment was about $4 billion. Okay. And that's a hefty check of change. Yeah. It's not, it's not bad. I think so. Rockefeller, you know, at that time, it was about number 20 or number 25 or something in terms of endowment size.
1: Yeah. And that, that's actually one of the things I. I appreciate about the Rockefeller Foundation in particular is that it's um it's it's got enough cash to be significant in its sway, but it's also small enough to be to be nimble. You know, the, the team that you're working with uh is it's it's not like USAID, you know, you it should be able to to move and keep up um with some changes. I'm not sure if it did, uh, but it it just seems like it would on paper.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and, and it was uh, I, I think Rockefeller. We we like to say that Rockefeller could punch above its weight, basically, meaning that nice. even though we didn't have as much funny uh, as much money as some of the other players, uh, we had a reasonable amount of influence, and, and that was in part informed by I think our history and and the credibility that we had as a foundation.
1: So let's let's talk a bit about about your portfolio, the ones that, the ones that you work on. So you started off um, with this donor alignment effort. Um did you did yep. you want to say more about about that or some of the other work that you did while you were there?
0: Yeah, so then I guess shortly after I started work on that, I joined uh, the pandemics initiative. That sounds relevant. And this was also very much about alignment. and and I think, uh, as I was sort of reflecting on my career, I think this question of alignment and collaboration and interoperability mm-hmm. has come up again and again and again. And I think it's sort of like a common theme of all of the problems I've run into in my life are about alignment and collaboration um, and breaking down silos. So, all right, tricky. Yes, it is. It is <laughs> the, the Pandemics Initiative, one of the pieces of work that we were doing was trying to work with uh, a, a coalition of countries this time. So six countries in the Mekong Basin in Southeast Asia to help Mm. them collaborate around a pandemic response.
1: Because- The governments themselves you're working directly
0: with. We were working directly with the governments themselves. And we actually were supporting this alliance of six countries, which was sort Mm. of run by the countries themselves. uh, Mm. And it was helping in country to country collaboration by the departments of public health for pandemic response. And the the reason for this was that, as we can obviously see and we understand, the pandemics and um, viruses don't re- don't respect borders. So if you have an outbreak of bird flu in Laos, it could quickly spread to Thailand or Cambodia or Vietnam.
1: I think we're all very aware of that now. This year, <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> so so the the challenges were kind of the interoperability of the human systems and the interoperability of the digital system so this is when i started from a technology perspective i started learning about and getting interested in public health informatics and that and actually one of my mm-hmm. earliest grants was around setting up a a biomedical uh, informatics training program at a school of public health in thailand because
1: nice.
0: we basically learned that there just weren't many people who understood how this could work. So they, they wanted to do data sharing. And mm-hmm. we wanted to also invest in some technology to help with that. But it was also just like a, a lack of people. There weren't people who had these skills, who understood what does public health informatics mean? And how can we build systems to both efficiently collect information and also share it within our country and with the world at large. The the initial work that we were doing eventually led to us starting this e-health initiative. And that was in this collaboration I had with uh, Ariel Pablos-Mendez, who was the Managing Director of Health. And he had started the e-health unit at the WHO. And he knew I had an IT background. And so we started collaborating on this space of e-health. And I didn't really know much about what e-health was at the time. So I started this very long learning journey that I'm still in today <laughs> um, to understand what is eHealth? How is it defined? How is it different than other things? And where is the value in, in eHealth? Um, so I was, started meeting with a lot of people. And this is where I started first forming all of the relationships that I, I have in this space and all the networks of, of all the different players. Um, and I think one part of the space that was very influential on me was a lot of these open source collaboratives like OpenMRS, for example. Um, OpenMRS had actually some earlier funding from Rockefeller uh, a few years before I had arrived. And for me, I think I learned so much about this kind of collaboration question from the way that open source collaborations work, right? Hmm. Um, because... You think about what, what is an open source collaboration. By its nature, it's people from different organizations are participating in this collaborative, right? Right. OpenMRS, for example, was originally started, I think, by three organizations. And they kind of found this common purpose and were able to iterate on building something that together was <clears throat> sort of. More valuable than it would have been than if they'd each been building it by themselves. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of like the root of this idea of collaboration. I think we've all heard this sort of, um, proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So right. I, I, I think a lot about that proverb in the context of open source mm-hmm. because the, the open source ethos is that you are giving up on this idea of me, right? You're mm-hmm. you're kind of giving up on this idea that I'm going to build the exact software that I want just to solve my problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's more like I'm going to create a series of compromises and build upon the diverse efforts of lots of people to get something that's better for all of us. And And sometimes uh- I think people think compromise is like a zero sum game, you know, if I, if I give up a dollar then the person on the other side of the table gets, you know, wins a dollar. But I think a real compromise, a really good compromise is when you find a solution that neither one of you brought to the table, but it's actually a better idea than either of you had. And so it's a win win for everybody.
1: Right. And if
0: you think about an open, an open source collaborative, it's like a virtuous cycle, where it's, you're getting better and better ideas because of the nature of the diversity of, of views and, and needs that are coming to the table.
1: Nice, and I, and I think you've captured there part of part of the challenge and the benefit that you're describing in this idea of co- collaboration. You know, the word compromise it it sounds a bit like giving up, and and as you said, the actors at the table, in some in some sense, do need to give up. You know, maybe their their pet project or their particular vision of how a particular tool or initiative is going to go um but the the benefit of coming to the table and having those dialogues and figuring out what's for the benefit of the community is that you you do have a broader ecosystem and a tool that is more widely applicable more widely used and and better maintained after all of it Carl one of the things i find interesting about hearing you talk about this is it, it sounds like you invested a lot of your energy in this period of time in 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 building those bridges and in connecting these communities together when I think of my my mental model of a, a donor, I think of someone who shows up, you know, sees a project that looks good, gives gives money, um, and gets the report. <laughs> you know, speaking in very basic terms on a regular basis. Can you shine a bit of light into what it is about the nature of of your work, or maybe of donor work in general, that makes you positioned, um, or maybe even required, to ensure that these these bridges are built?
0: So, if you're if you're a if you're a program officer. At a, at a foundation, uh, you have, <clears throat> you know, roughly an annual budget. That's part of your initiative of of how much you can spend, and then you have your program goals, which are usually quite lofty and far reaching. And so, in a way, you're sort of trying to see like what's the biggest bang for your buck? How do you, how do you make your investment go as far as possible? Makes and sense. When you're a player like the Rockefeller Foundation, who doesn't have that much money compared to hmm. USAID, for example, there's just things that you can't really do, right? Like, <laughs> I can't just go and build a hospital, um, for example, because then that would take up my budget for the whole... <laughs> initiative, right? Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe you could
1: build a community center or a clinic.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, or a and, reach and, post. Yeah. And, and what we often think about is more sort of like, how can our funding be catalytic? Meaning mm. that you put a small amount of money and that spurs others to join in and invest. Um, and eventually mm. it, it, it becomes something that the government would, uh, would take over and, and be supporting on a long-term sustainable basis. Right, that's the goal. Yeah, exactly. And I often I often thought about this picture of, if you're a donor, you imagine that the world is sort of composed of, let's say, countries and NGOs, that that's kind of your world of who you can give money to, right? Um, mm-hmm. But if you're a country or an NGO, you see the world is composed of, like, these various donors, and you have to deal with all these <laughs> various donors, right? So everybody... <laughs> sees this very different world, right? And, and the real world is not like that. The real world is actually this massive multiplicity of thousands of organizations and, you know, mm-hmm. 180 countries or 200 countries. And then however many donors there are, a few hundred kind of major donors. And all these groups, if you look at the aid flows, all these aid flows are overlapping back and forth. Yeah. Um, so for me collaboration is also a way of kind of bringing some a bit more order to this space mm-hmm. and, and finding ways to limit the repeatedness of, of what you're doing and mm-hmm. help make sure that your dollars are building on something else that, that somebody else has already done. So we did a lot of collaboration with other donors. I worked a mm-hmm. lot with IDRC. We worked a lot with the Gates Foundation, mm-hmm. with groups like the WHO and with USAID, DFID, There was lots and lots of collaboration happening amongst the donors.
1: That's great to hear.
0: Because we wanted to be basically building on each other. And the other thing is, I think donors, (laughs) I I, I sometimes say donors are herd animals. And so like if somebody's putting money in, then other people will follow because it's sort of good to know, you know, it gives it credibility. (laughs) If if one organization has already vetted something, then it means that it might be a good idea Mm -hmm. and you might follow along.
1: Right, right, right. That makes sense. And it's really, it's really interesting to hear you say that, Carl, because when we speak to various people in this sector, even on this podcast, um, there's been this call to action of donors, you should collaborate more. Um, and one of the key things that you keep on coming back to is is your focus on collaboration. The other thing that you highlighted there was the whole ecosystem of actors that are working together, you know, all these countries, all these organizations, all these donors. and And I can imagine for someone like you were in your position at Rockefeller, uh, you could spend all of your time trying to build those bridges and collaborations, but maybe you're not going to get to the hundredth country. <laughs> maybe you're not going to get to the 50th other donor. And there's this whole, this whole business of forming the the Alliance and the ecosystem for change uh, that'll push forward your, your shared agenda and even defining what that shared agenda is. Does that make sense? Just that there's, there's so many different moving Pieces that are going out there, and part of the the fine art of what you were doing is figuring out, okay, which is the string that I pull, which which are the conversations um, that need to make progress in order for change to happen.
0: Yes, and you can't collaborate with everybody, and and you can't, you know, uh, <laughs> <What>? yeah, really, <laughs> Un- <laughs> <No. laughs> unfortunate but true. Um, yeah, it's like the right the right level of collaboration, but but it but I think it's also true that that a lot of the things I worked on, I'd say, that were the most impactful were deeply collaborative in, in nature.
1: I believe it, just like that proverb that you cited earlier. I'm maybe at this point going to switch over to some of the, the rapid-fire questions uh, that we that we have in order to wrap up the episode. Is there anything else that you wanted to
0: add? I guess one, one other thing that I wanted to share, which is well, I guess I guess two insights. So one is first of all being you know becoming very aware of my privilege, right? My oh, my privilege amen. as uh, as an American, as a white male.
1: We could have a whole other season yes. on on this topic, but please go on.
0: Absolutely. Oh. And and when you're a donor, right? That's also a very privileged position to be in, right? And you you realize it mm-hmm. because there's a dynamic, there's a power dynamic that you have to recognize. And because of that, you also really end up valuing people who you value friendships with people who can be really honest with you, right? And and say to you, that's a stupid mm. idea. Building those honest human relationships that kind of went beyond the bounds of the donor grantee relationship was quite important because I wanted people to be honest and authentic with me and not... Awesome treat me or my ideas differently because I was a donor. Because I I know that's always a risk, right? And you always have to be aware of Mm -hmm. it. And it can go to your head, right? It's like, oh, you know, you're the smartest person in the world and you have the best ideas. It's like, no, it's just probably because you're a donor, right? You have to be very (laughs) careful of that. The other realization I came to is this idea of kind of, like, what you see depends on where you stand. I came up with this metaphor or that maybe it's like a parable of like the bird and the frog. You imagine this bird which is flying over a lake, and, and the bird, you know, she can see the size of the lake, and she can see where the water comes in and where the water comes out, and she can see where the frogs live and where the crocodiles live. And the bird thinks that she understands the lake because she can see the whole lake, right? And then you have the frog, and the frog lives in the lake. And the frog understands the details of all these Various insects and the relationships between the plants and the insects and how to avoid a predator. And the frog thinks they really understand the lake. <laughs> and, and then you have an airplane that flies over and the airplane, it can count, you know, dozens of lakes and the airplane knows about the ocean. And so the airplane thinks that they really understand the world right and, so, and and obviously right nobody really <laughs> understands the totality of it right it's 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 like the parable of the blind man and the elephant where everybody is just seeing part of the problem and i think all of the problems we face in development are like this like we can only see part of it because of where we stand so i always wanted to be very aware of that as a donor that The way I viewed the world, because I was privileged enough to be able to travel to so many countries and meet with so many brilliant people who were working on challenges, it it made me think that I understood the space. But that was just because of where I stood. And that wasn't the same thing as understanding from different points of view in different positions, right? And and to really value those other ways of seeing as equally valid interpretations of the world that that my view of the world was just one interpretation of the world and it wasn't necessarily the true interpretation
1: i think that's really going to stick in my mind that's a great parable thank you for sharing that carl and and the other thing that you said there as well that i wanted to highlight was that business of talking to people who will speak truth to you as a donor, you know, despite the privilege, despite the power that that you exerted. I feel like that's a, a really useful takeaway for some of the young professionals listening to this podcast. I'm sure there's a lot of people who will say, oh, you know, Rockefeller's in the room, Gates is in the room, USAID in, is in the room. Let me go and say whatever I think they want me to say. And it sounds like what you what you actually valued was the person who would tell you what their version their perspective is on on the truth, their ideas of what would work and shoot down the ideas that they knew would not work because they had that perspective that that you were lacking in your work. I think that's a great thought piece I'll have to think about more as we continue forth. A few last questions just to wrap up our episode uh, from our rapid fire segment of the different projects that you've been involved in or even funded, if there's a common mistake that you see from other teams of people trying to do digital health interventions, um, that is there a common mistake that you see um, and, and maybe a corresponding fix if a fix exists?
0: One common mistake that I've seen, and I see this in my work even today, is not valuing the quote, legacy. Huh. By legacy, I mean, like, what was there before? Interesting. Some, somebody said once that a legacy system is one that's been around long enough to work. And I think there's a lot of wisdom <laughs> in that insight, in that it's very tempting to come and sort of sweep away and come up with a brand new innovation that's going to change the game. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's such a huge difference between an idea and it's realization on the ground and so when you look at a real thing that actually works even only partially that thing has had to make many compromises and adjustments and tweaks over its lifetime to to get to a place where it works and the act of tweaking something until it works that is the act of creating that is the act of innovation sometimes People are too enamored with a new idea and don't spend enough time understanding both the people and the systems that are in place and why they're shaped that way. What are the influences that made them that way? And what might need to change in order for your new idea to take root? It's not to say that new ideas are bad. I think new ideas are needed. But a new idea is worth nothing if it doesn't, turn into something
1: right and i like there how you're applying this idea of the legacy system both to the technology side as well as to the people and the process side because there's definitely something for us to learn from each of those existing pieces carl is there a trend uh, in this industry you can speak either to the development or the technology side or such that you're that you're excited about that you're looking forward to in the next couple of years or one that you're worried about
0: so i'd say there's two trends one that I'm excited about and one that I'm worried about, <laughs> the, one, Great. the one that I'm <laughs> excited about is the decentralization of technology development and innovation. Nice. So there are now startup ecosystems blossoming all over the planet of people creating True. technology solutions using the capital markets, using the private sector or or using public money, but basically creating solutions for themselves. So the, the amount of money that's flowing into new technology development all around the world now just dwarfs what any of the donors are able to put in. And that, I think, is a very mm-hmm. positive development, right? Um, mm-hmm. Now, what's the concerning trend? The concerning trend is there's this, centralization of technology influence into a very small set of American companies. Hmm. And that is happening at the same time, right? So at the same time as you have lots of innovation and interesting things happening, you also have a, a very, very fast growth of Amazon and Google and Facebook and these kind of companies. Hence all
1: the antitrust issues that are popping up for Google and, and these other companies these days.
0: Exactly those bigger companies are sort of now defining what the internet is. And I think that's starting to get dangerous. These companies, you know, the Googles and the Amazons of the world, they have a lot of brilliant technologists who are working on the next generation of artificial intelligence. But we talked before about how technology is interwoven with everything about our society and the same applies to artificial intelligence. It's not a neutral technology. It is a, it is a reflection of our society and its flaws. When these yeah. algorithms and these companies that deploy them become so powerful, we have to always be challenging who built the technology and who's benefiting from it.
1: Oh, great, great questions, Carl. Two last questions for you. One is if you have a kudos or a shout out that you'd like to give to another mover or shaker in this field.
0: Yeah, I would like to give a kudos to Paul Biondich, hmm. one of the founders of OpenMRS, good friend of mine. Why is that? And Paul, one, he was um, a big influence on me and helped me really understand the space of digital health. And second, because I think he's one of the people who's done the most to build up this idea of collaborations in the digital health space. He's an incredibly collaborative person. He's very open. And he's been a great leader in both OpenMRS and OpenHIE over the years and I think was a big influence on the development of the digital health space.
1: Awesome. Last question, Carl, is if you have any recommended reading. It could be a book, a blog, a podcast related to digital health or not just from your own personal interest. Something you'd like to share with our
0: listeners? Yeah, one book I really like and I go back to from time to time is called Science in Action by Bruno Latour. And
1: huh, haven't heard
0: of it. This is where this book is where I get a lot of these ideas around the relationship of science and those who fund science. Interesting. He he actually gives this example which is really quite interesting about this lab. There's a laboratory. And uh, you have a scientist at the bench, and she's got her white jacket on, and she's doing science with her test tubes. Uh, and then you have the manager of the lab, the director of the lab. And the director of the lab, she is going off to this office to make a presentation, going off over here to ask for more grant funding, going off over here to review a paper, going off over here to talk to a publisher about publishing the paper that just came out of the lab going over here to make a partnership with another university to extend the next phase of research. And so you look at these two people, right? And one of them is at the bench and the other one is wearing a suit and running around. And you ask the question, which one is doing science, huh. right? And the answer is the person at the bench would be nowhere if it wasn't for this person who was running around <laughs> doing all of this work. And, and if you, if you want to see a real life example of it, go read, the tweets about what Dr. Fauci does, right? So Dr. Fauci is kind of (laughs) one of the most prominent scientists right now in the world for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And you look at his day, what is his day composed of, right? And it's this amazing combination of talking to people, influencing people, trying to build collaborations, trying to build consensus, And then also, by the way, he sometimes spends time as a clinician. So he's actually still seeing patients, but he's also doing interviews and doing news shows and overseeing a team and doing all of this stuff. So Dr. Fauci is practicing science, but he's not sitting, building a virus, but (laughs) <laughs> Everything he's doing is making those vaccines and making the response possible. Fascinating. To me, that, that story, and the, and, and the story is described in that book, Science in Action. The influences and the funding and the collaborations, all of that decides the science. It determines what is a valuable question and what the scientists should be working on. The universe is infinite. We could be studying anything. Technology is infinite. We could <laughs> be building any technology. Right, But the technology we choose to build and the science we choose to fund is based on these power structures and the societal influences around it.
1: Carl, that's fascinating. It really hits the nail on the head for me and I'm sure for others in our audience. You know, there's this constant dichotomy of, of those of us who are like, OK, do I, I actually want to be building software? I want to be giving food to hungry people myself with my own hands. And then there's the whole infrastructure around that, you know, the networks, the organizations, the funding, all these different pieces, which are also extremely important. And then the, the question of how does how does any one individual fit themselves in? And the reassurance that you've provided, which is that wherever you are in the system, if you're on the bench or if you're wearing the suit, you're still contributing towards that greater cause. And in fact, each of those individuals has an important role to play. Otherwise, we're not going to get to the cause that we're all all rolling it for so thank you for sharing that carl you're welcome thanks so much for being on this episode it's been a real joy talking to you i really feel like i I learned a lot thanks for having me i'm not really one for parables but i like the one that carl mentioned about the bird and the frog how we all think that we have perfect information about the world around us when in fact it's huge and vast and complicated and we need to piece together the different perspectives that we have in order to find truth or to make the right decision with the funds with which we've been entrusted. hope you enjoyed this conversation and if you have any reactions or suggestions for future episodes please feel free to reach out to me on twitter at Rowena Luke. Take care I'll see you next time.